Before we get started, I just wanted to thank you guys for coming back for another episode of The Places You'll Go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to get involved in the community or take a guess at our weekly photo teasers, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ThePlacesYG. If you have your own amazing stories to tell us, feedback about the show, or ideas for upcoming episodes, feel free to email us at theplacesyg at gmail.com or visit anchor.fm forward slash theplacesyg to leave us a text or voice message. Finally, if you want more people to find out about how awesome this show is, follow us on Spotify and Overcast and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Now, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. This is a Wandering Hippies production. We're back! Hi! And I hope you guys loved the first episode of the six weeks of Halloween. We loved recording it. It was very fun. It's actually made its rounds around Facebook, which is pretty cool. Exciting. Yeah. We have 16 listeners now. <laughs> Not even, but we <laughs> have like that, that post from the episode has uh, more than 1,600 views so that's far. A, that is exciting. Which is exciting for us. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Watch out. Yeah. Watch out, world. We're coming in hot. You're going to see us on the top... 400. But either way, it was really cool that the post made the round so well. That was that was pretty dope. Like, For sure. I thought that was cool. And I hope everybody enjoyed the first episode of the six weeks of Halloween. We're back for yet another episode. We've had no major developments since the last time we recorded. We've done very little. No, that's not oh, true. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, you're right. We, we uh, spent some time with Lakin's family. No! What happened? I waxed my eyebrows tonight, oh guys. Oh my god. First time in over a year, and guess what? They're not twins, they're sisters. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we got a little excited trimming them, but here we are. <laughs> but also we hung out with my family. <laughs> it was great seeing everyone. Yes, our grandparents came up from Florida. We're getting ready to go down to Florida to see them. We are going to do some haunted tour, a haunted tour of uh, Ebor City, which is in Tampa. We're really very excited for that. It's going to be a blast. We're road tripping with our Stella Bear again. It's going to be great. It is. I'm excited. And before anyone says shit, I know I broke my top 50 rule this week. I know. What's your top 50 rule? In like the first episode, I said... You weren't going back. No to... no cities that are in the top 50 most populous metropolitan areas in the U.S., I'm not going to do them. We're going to be back, too. Sorry. I know. Like, you got to cut us some slack. I, this is another one. You guys already clicked on the episode. You know where it's about. Is there any better city for Halloween than New Orleans? Like, let's just be honest here. Salem's pretty cool, but New Orleans might be the one. Like, the the Creole culture, the uh, Day of the Dead culture, all of that is just so permeated into oh, New Orleans that... 100%. Oh my gosh. And, and you gotta say it right. It's not New Orleans. It's New Orleans. Or New Orleans. And both are acceptable if you're from the city. That's how they say it. I learned that on the City of New Orleans website. Well, my friend dated a guy from Louisiana. 
And he made fun of her for calling it New Orleans. And we actually used the advice that he gave us on previous episodes to quote-unquote say the city's name correctly, where we said, it's Nolens. No, no, no. I learned that is how somebody who's not from New Orleans, but is from Louisiana, says the city's name. So, we learned it the right way now. We got it covered. And, like I said, this is a big city. There's a lot to cover. This is our second trip to Louisiana. But I'm not sorry about going to this big of a city or going back to Louisiana. So, let's get this Creole adventure going. That's Lakin. And that's Chance. And these are the six weeks of Halloween. Yeah. The places you go. So with a city population of more than 343,000 people and a metro population of 1.27 million, bringing it in as the 45th most populous metropolitan area in the United States, New Orleans is far and away the largest city we have ever tried to cover on this show. And I did say try to cover because a city this large with such a complex and rich history is very next to impossible to adequately cover. I sure was wondering. I'm yeah. like, damn. No, I did not expect us to be able to do a great job at covering it. We're just yeah. going to do our best because there, there's a lot that goes into this city. We're coming back. I'm sorry, guys. I know it's a big city, but we're coming back. And I can't wait to actually go to New Orleans. Oh, it's on my list of places that I've got to go. It's going to be a Halloween trip for us. I'm going to have to take some anxiety medicine with me because there are so many people and they love Halloween. I love Halloween too, but COVID made me agoraphobic. You know what we should really do? What? We should go on the Day of the Dead. Don't even. That would be threatening. So cool. I would probably cry. That would be so cool. November 1st? Um, is that the Day of the Dead? Yeah, I think uh, you you might be right. So really, if we go around Halloween, we'll be there for it. I don't know. I'm I honestly, I'm, I'm an idiot when it comes to Mexican yeah, culture. The like first that. or the second. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. So, so if we're there for Halloween in the U.S., we'll be there for the Day of the Dead. There's mm-hmm. huge parades. Oh, I know. There's just amazing stuff that goes on. You can go to the Cities of the Dead. It's... It would be just such an amazing experience to have. And I think everybody should have it once. So, lovers of the Crescent City, please just cut us some slack. We're going to do our best covering this. Louisiana itself has some of the richest First Nations history in all of the United States. But the area where New Orleans sets now was once inhabited by the Chittimacha Nation. These peoples have lived along the Mississippi River Delta for possibly more than 6,000 years. Their native language is an isolate, meaning that their language is not related to any of the native tongues on all of, of North America, on all of Turtle Island. 
In short, we don't know where they came from or how they came to claim the swamps and bayous of Louisiana. But they did claim the areas from Lafayette, Louisiana, to the Gulf of Mexico, and then over to New Orleans. The Chittimacha know in their lore that they have always been there. Before Europeans arrived, they were the most powerful nation from Texas to Florida as they controlled the most fertile freshwater estuary on the Gulf Coast, meaning that they were the nation to come to for access to the Gulf and fishing. They were some of the most talented basket weavers on the continent and were the best potters. As Columbus arrived in the New World, the Chittimacha numbered more than 20,000, rivaling even the most powerful peoples of the time. The Chittimacha did not directly contact any of the first European arrivals, but nonetheless, their numbers reduced to less than half their original strength with as few as 9,000 remaining thanks to exotic disease by the time the French arrived at the Mississippi River Delta in 1700. Early in the French's tenure in Louisiana, a war between them and the Chittimacha erupted. It would last for about 12 years, but eventually disease Alcohol consumption and inferior firepower would result in the defeat of the native peoples. They were expelled from the area around New Orleans and sent north along the Mississippi River into Choctaw land where further conflict would challenge their stability. While the nation would be granted just shy of 1,100 acres of their original lands in the 1800s, the 20th century would prove increasingly more challenging for them as their numbers dwindled to as few as 69 individuals and their children were shipped off to boarding schools in Pennsylvania in an effort to kill their language and culture. More and more of their land was taken to repay quote-unquote back taxes to the state of Louisiana. Cute. But the Chittimacha have always been there and they're still there. I love it. They've repurchased more of their original land, so that they now hold just over 950 acres, and their numbers have gradually increased, so that their roles now set at about 900 people. They avoided the forced removals of the late 1800s that we know as the Trail of Tears removals, and thanks to the work of linguist Morris Swadesh, and a joint venture with Rosetta Stone, they've actually managed to bring back their once extinct language and are immersing their youth in it in their schools, and they're again practicing the ancient tradition of basket weaving. That's really cool! I love that! This linguist from the 1930s, he just, like, met somebody who was a native speaker of their language and literally just filled journal after journal with different words and their meanings. So now, like, when when they found these journals, I think it was a museum in, I want to say it was a museum either in Washington, D.C. It was somewhere in the Northeast. This museum found these old journals and w- reached out to the, to the tribe and were like, hey, we've got these journals that pretty much give us everything we need to know about your language. Do you want access to the to copies of them so that you can work on bringing them back? And they're like, hell yeah. And then they worked with Rosetta Stone and Rosetta Stone's like, yeah, this is everything we need. We'll, we'll get you a program that you can teach your kids your language again. It's not, great. Not me being emotional about this. It was, isn't that so great? Ugh, I love that so yeah. much. That's so, and you know what? Bless the journal keepers. Yeah. 
In the end, the Chittimacha have always been there, and despite all of the trials and tribulations that they've faced, it looks like they will always be there. So just after the defeat of the indigenous peoples in 1718, La Nouvelle Orleans was founded by the French Mississippi Company. After a few decades of French control, the Louisiana Territory was ceded to the Spanish Empire. Under Spain's control, construction of grand architecture took place, modeling the city after several famous Spanish cities and Filipino immigrants flooded into the New World and into this area. Additionally, the Spanish used the city that was now Nuevo Orleans to smuggle supplies and ammunition into the British colonies, in essence using uh, the American Revolution as a proxy war to undermine the British Empire. So they they supplied the American revolutionaries. This was the time that that most of the famous French Quarter was built, but I suppose Spanish Quarter doesn't quite have the same ring, does it? No. You know, but really it's Spanish architecture that defines the French Quarter. I kind of thought that, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, maybe. When you look I don't at architecture know. from like Madrid or, you know, yeah. cities like that, it's like the same. <clears throat> or just even like St. Augustine. Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. For a short time, the French regained control of the territory, of course, before its sale to the newly formed United States. Next is a tough part to talk about for a lot of people. We're okay with talking about it, and I think it's important to talk about. Slavery in New Orleans was established long before the U.S. took control, as the First Nations consistently raided the weak fringe interests in the territory and destabilized the economy pretty heavily. And because of this, inadvertently, African slavery became the only plausible way for the French Empire to maintain its profitable operations in this remote region. The Code Noir, which we know now as slave laws, established by the French as massive amounts of African slaves poured into the colony to prop up its fragile economy, would serve as the basis for for New Orleans' strange and unique relationship with its black population. They were required to speak French, marry in the Catholic Church, and be baptized in 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 the Catholic Church. This kind of confluence of circumstances, this requirement of of holding a French uh, culture along with the African culture that they brought with them from Africa, brought about the Afro-Creole culture that has come to define much of the city's uniqueness today. As the Haitian Revolution erupted after the Louisiana Purchase, thousands of French refugees flooded into New Orleans and brought their slaves with them. These arrivals sent word back to Haiti that New Orleans was a French city in essence, and free black people came from Haiti as well, despite the objections of the American governor of the time. (laughs) French Creoles now exerted control of society and economy in this now rapidly growing city. Numerous waves of French immigration flooded into the city through the early 1800s, ever-increasing its French-speaking Creole majority. The Creole elite of New Orleans were determined to make the city all it could possibly be and to establish it as the most valuable port in the United States. And so it was. 
during the antebellum period of the South, trillions of dollars worth of goods moved into and out of the city. And that's trillions of dollars in their time. Mm -hmm. If that puts that into perspective now, that's quintillions of dollars now. That's amounts of money that we can't even fathom. Still. Yeah, still moved into and out of New Orleans. Riverboats crowded the Mississippi and massive ships from the African coast and the east coast of the United States sailed into the port daily. The Big Easy became the third largest city in the United States and the primary arrival point for newly stolen and enslaved Africans as well as recaptured runaways and young American-born enslaved persons to be put on the market. New Orleans was home to the pariah that was the largest slave market on the face of the planet. With $500 million per year worth of enslaved human beings being bought and sold in the city, and tens of billions of dollars worth of supporting services boosting the Creole capitalists' precious economy. As a point of reference, the federal budget at this time was $78 million. Jeez. And New Orleans itself was making $500 million a year in slave sales. Fuck. And transportation for recently purchased slaves and stuff like that. So I know I'm going further into the history of the city than I said I was going to, but the atrocities that took place in New Orleans cannot and should not be ignored or wiped away. They happened. Humans were kept in pens like livestock, beaten for showing emotion, ripped from their mothers and spouses. Also, a handful of aristocrats and businessmen could line their pockets and keep cotton king. And I think it's important that we just touch on that And I could go so much further into the slave markets in New Orleans, but I'm I'm trying to shorten these up as much as I can. Now that I've made that note, we'll jump forward to when the American Civil War began. New Orleans was quickly occupied by the Union, and in 1862, General Benjamin F. Butler took command of Louisiana, and of New Orleans specifically as the military governor. Confederate sympathizers called him the Beast Butler for his rigid control of the city and his order that women who were out in the streets assaulting federal troops would be assumed to be prostitutes and treated as such. What? Yep. So, Confederate sympathizing women would oftentimes attack federal troops as they marched through the streets. Oh, okay. So, when they would do that, then they were taken and imprisoned as prostitutes and treated Mm. as such. And I'm not saying that it's okay the way that they were treated by federal troops by any means. But I just thought it was an interesting historical note that that took place. Okay. Additionally... The uh, slaves in New Orleans were amongst the first in Louisiana to be freed, and many banded together to form the Corps d'Afrique. D'Afrique. I I can't say it. It's French. I don't know. Okay. And they, so basically it was a corps of all formerly enslaved people that got together to fight against the Confederacy. The Beast of New Orleans... Uh, the Beast Butler, also prohibited teaching French in schools 
and pretty much ensured that the French majority were ostracized by banning the usage of French or French Creole in public places and government offices. With the end of slavery and the defeat of the rebels, the Creole elite's biggest fears were coming to fruition. They were losing their wealth and their power, two things they had worked so long to ensure was theirs. That didn't stop them from attempting to cling to their imagined superiority with the implementation of Jim Crow laws. White New Orleanians could at least attempt to keep themselves separate from the black citizens that they saw as less than. Black citizens who had been freed before the war staunchly opposed these new laws, and these were black Creole individuals who were very against Jim Crow laws that now lumped them in with freed slaves. So, you know, kind of take that for what it's worth because many of these these uh, um, individuals also had owned slaves of their own. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and they formed uh, the Citizens Committee to test the legality of laws like the separate but like the separate streetcar law in New Orleans. Homer Plessy boarded a white-only streetcar in the city and refused to leave, leading to his arrest. He would eventually be uh, appeal his case all the way to the Supreme Court in the landmark case that would come to be known as Plessy versus Ferguson, which established that separate but equal Jim Crow laws were constitutional at that time. The Civil Rights Movement had deep ties to New Orleans, as we all know, for it was in the Ninth Ward where little Ruby Bridges became the first black child to attend a previously white school south of the Mason-Dixon line. Eventually, the city shrank in importance. Also, quick note, happy birthday, Ruby Bridges. It was not that long ago. It was only a couple weeks ago when her birthday was. Happy so, birthday, and I think she's Ruby. like 67, I want to say. So... And also, that kind of puts into perspective. We think about these things as being so detached from us. Like, this was not that long ago where black people couldn't go to the same schools as white people. But anyway, eventually, New Orleans shrank in importance economically, but her cultural importance as a tourist destination did not wane. She became one of the top spots in the country to visit during Mardi Gras, to experience vibrant music culture, and to get to know a little bit more about voodoo. Mm-hmm. Hoodoo, voodoo. All of it. And now the city is known by many names, one of which is the Big Easy, but there is nothing easy about the dark past just below the surface, if you just look. She's seen plague, penal colony, war, violence, slavery, and disaster, and all of these things have made this Gulf Coast gym exactly what it is today. That's why it's such a great place to visit. It's a city that has so many opportunities to reinvent itself for better or for worse. And there are a lot of unforgettable things to do and see in this old and haunting city. So, when we're there, where are we going to stay? Our hotel stop, um, stay, hotel stay. Yes, I like that one. Okay. (laughs) This hidden gem can be found on the bustling Bourbon Street, Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Once a high society ballroom and later turned into a convent, the building is rich with Crescent City history. 
With its bell opaque style polished marble and southern hospitality, you might forget what street you just walked off of. There is a year-round access to their in-ground heated pool and a friendly valet waiting to park your car so you don't have to. Hell yeah. The Bourbon is located next to the St. Louis Cathedral in Jackson Square. And now for my favorite part, a professional tour guide will show you around the hotel on a haunted ghost tour. Yes. And I didn't want to go too deep into the ghost stuff because I, if you're going to go, I want you to enjoy it because it, yeah. there's some pretty cool yeah. stories. Yeah, I get that. And, at, you know, other hotels are like, no, we're not haunted. No, they're embracing. I love that. Yeah. <clears throat> so they have their expert chef on Wednesday give a demonstration on how to make gumbo. And that's most Wednesdays. Except for, like, major holidays. Yeah. That's, sound, that's awesome. Yeah. The hotel goes big for holidays, and there is a party for most of them. <laughs> is it there everywhere? Is it yeah. what New Orleans is about? For, and if there's a, a holiday coming, we're about to have a party, y'all. And especially on Bourbon Street. Yeah. Bourbon Street is, yeah. The party, party street. Yeah. yeah. Make sure you check it out the next time you're in the area. And really, guys, if you go and you go on a ghost tour, hit my line. Hell yeah. You know? Let us know about it. We want to hear everything about these tours. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so recreationally, just outside of New Orleans, deep in the swampy lands of the Mississippi River Delta is a special protected area that was the site of one of the most famous battles in American history. Of course, I'm referring to the Battle of New Orleans. And the location I'm referring to is the Jean Lafayette National Historic Park and Preserve. There are actually six units of this preserve, all of which are worth visiting. And they protect the cultural heritage of southern Louisiana from the French Quarter all the way up to Lafayette. The Chalumet Unit, which is just 10 miles outside of New Orleans, is the site of the Battle of New Orleans and of the uh, Chalumet National Cemetery. In the preserve, you'll of course be able to enjoy visiting the site of the incredibly famous American battle that is homage in uh, one of the greatest country story songs ever written and sang. That's a, it's a banger, I'll tell you that much. You'll also learn here that in this famous battle, Pirates actually fought alongside the U.S. Tell me that's not cool. No, absolutely. Why (laughs) wouldn't they? Fuck England. Fuck Spain. (laughs) The namesake of the preserve, Jean Lafayette, was a French pirate who had been arrested by the U.S. Navy, but was pardoned in exchange for his cooperation against the British. So the pirates fought alongside the Americans in 1814 with Colonel Jackson. Aside from that unique history, this amazing bayou is home to more than 200 species of birds as well as gators, tons of frogs, bobcats, deer, crabs, and several fish species. As well as this area, the National Park Service operates a portion of the French Quarter where you can learn so much about the history of the city. So it's a great place to visit and the energy of that battlefield is going to provide the perfect primer for the rest of the haunting experiences that you're going to have in the Crescent City 
So to learn more, visit nps.gov forward slash J-E-L-A. And with that, it's entertainment time. So I tried to keep it to mostly Halloween stuff because I could go on forever. Oh my god, this about city has so much. And we're just we're keeping it to the French Quarter. And if you ain't in the French Quarter, then where the fuck you at? <laughs> I can't stand you. <laughs> I'm not there either, so it's okay. I totally get it. <laughs> so their first stop, I have us stopping at Voodoo Fest. It is held every year on Halloween for the past 20 years. Go and learn about the history of voodoo and do some fun shopping. Priests are all around teaching the New Orleans-style faith and vendors selling their crafts like oils, art, and little voodoo dolls. Oh, shit. Yeah. Saturday, October 19th, a child-friendly Halloween parade will be going on right through the French Quarter. And this is this year. You can expect to see lots of dancing, amazing floats, and delicious candy, and spooky Halloween costumes. Yes. Before the parade, the zombie run will be held, which is where people dress up as zombies and run a marathon. <laughs> oh, shit. I wouldn't have to dress up like a zombie <laughs> to look Stop like that it. after a marathon. So good for you guys. I'm happy for you. Some, and then we, I have Scout Island Scream Park. This is only a couple years old, but is quickly becoming a tourist and local favorite. Located on a woody patch of land surrounded by lagoons and a city park, expect to see spooky animatronics, leaping zombies, and all kinds of special effects. Nice. There's a scare-free zone, which includes a corn maze and a little pumpkin patch for the your for little the, ones. For the chillins. And all I can think of was Scooby Doo Zombie Island. Yes. The entire time. Yeah. Yeah. And last but not least, the Frenchman Street Party on Frenchman Street itself. Oh. Yeah. Not to be confused by the other Frenchman Street. On a Frenchman's Street. Posers. Yeah. Tools. Anyway. If you aren't. Bothered by crowds, this is the best place to show off your costume and see some of the best costumes on display in the area. And people go all out. Yeah, This is New Orleans. Like, people love Halloween. And yeah. the city's spooky. And the Day of the Dead. It's beautiful. Yeah. Why wouldn't you go all out? Amen. So it's dinner time, baby. Thank God I'm and- starving. <laughs> And New Orleans is a city of food. Cuisine defines this old gem of the coast and brings people from so many backgrounds together over good food. Oh, sign me up. The French Quarter is, of course, the best place to get your fill. And an area with as much history as this means you'll be dining in with more than just tourists. Chartres House in the French Quarter has been serving tantalizing, authentic Cajun food for many years at their location on 540 Chartres Street. And I'm probably saying that wrong because it's French and I'm not French, but I'm doing my best, (laughs) y'all. But that building has a lot more history in it than just that restaurant. It was the beginning location for the Great Fire of 1788 that burned nearly 900 buildings in New Orleans. 
Mm. That's right. That's where it started. Mm. It was a former quarantine location for enslaved children during the yellow fever epidemic and was owned by a former Napoleonic soldier. Hmm. Today, you can find a seat on the upper terrace overlooking the beautiful historic buildings all around the restaurant. Grab some fried alligator to start your meal off and dig into a bowl of andouille gumbo or crawfish etouffee. Mm. Oh my god, etouffee? Uh, I had a regular make that for me at the bar once, and it was so spicy, but so freaking delicious. I'm like sitting there like... Sweating. And, and I'm like, like, no, I love spicy stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, you should try it. And my face was melting. And I would love that experience again. But maybe with an acid, you know? <laughs> Sign me up. But as you're there, be sure to keep your eyes peeled for the specter of Major Louis Galli watching over his property or looking out on the streets of New Orleans. And if you are amongst the brave, place an arm through one of the small barred windows at the back of the restaurant and see if you feel children grabbing your hand. After all, that was the quarantine ward. And if you want to learn more, check them out at chartreusehouse.com, which is C-H-A-R-T-R-E-S house.com. So it's Beer Palooza time. Yeah. I see Beer Palooza. <laughs> that was perfect. That was everything I could have ever asked for. <laughs> I'm sorry, Louis Armstrong. Please don't hold no, that no. against me. That is an homage. That is an homage to Louis. Rest his soul. He's like, I never saw white chicks doing this, but here we go. (laughs) This week's Brewery Visible take us to the banks of the mighty Mississippi to Brew Carine Brewing Company, which brew is spelled B-R-I-E-U-X, because that's how you do it in Louisiana. French fashion. That's right. This brewery embraces the high strangeness that is New Orleans, making beer that is as weird and interesting as their home city. They're just... A stone's throw from Vucarie, which is the French term for the French Quarter, which of course inspired their name. With unique beers like Leaning Tower of Pilsner, Leaning Tower of Pilsner, (laughs) (laughs) an Italian Pilsner, and Cashmere Money Records. (gasps) It's a lawless game. (laughs) That's right. Which is a double New England IPA brewed with cashmere hops. And, and Young Money. That's right. Young Money. Amelie, Amelie. <laughs> and Wookie Sounds, a dry hopped Saison. Their beers will have you ready to take on all the Big Easy has to offer. So if you want to learn a little bit more about Brew Carré, visit B-R-I-E-U-X-C-A-R-R-E dot com. And with that, we're going to get started with the first story. Okay, so let's get into this second segment with a um, with another legendary monster. But I want to make it clear that by legendary, that could include infamous. But I'll let Lakin take the wheel from here because this is her story. It is my story. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you guys want me to read this in a Louis Armstrong voice? <laughs> That's not going to happen. But I thought I'd give you the option. <laughs> <laughs> I titled this story, An Axe and All That Jazz. <laughs> that was too much. No, that was fantastic. Anyway, I just, I do want to give out a little trigger warning because it's very violent. There is violence towards women, children. He's non-discretionary on his violence. And they thought they, that he was, but nope, he is not. So. No fucks given. I just want to let everyone know if you're not comfortable, skip on over to chance a story you can mine's not going to be the most comfortable but you can okay so it's 12 15 a.m march 13th 1919 in new orleans and every bar and local dance spot is blaring jazz this wasn't unusual considering new orleans is the birthplace of jazz what is Unusual is that almost every single house in the area is also listening to jazz loudly and in whatever way they can. Why was the whole city alive with music, especially at that hour? This was no holiday celebration. Mardi Gras had come and gone. So what spurred the impromptu citywide jazz festival? Unfortunately, the people of the Crescent City weren't celebrating anything. They were playing jazz in whatever way they could to save their lives. Jazz might raise your spirits and may have some mental health healing properties, but who or what was an an entire city afraid of. That who or what would be the Axeman of New Orleans? <gasps> I said New Orleans! Ew! <laughs> I'm canceled! Anyway, May 22nd, 1918, an Italian grocery store owner, Joseph Maggio, and his wife were found dead in a pool of blood. After Joseph didn't show up to work, his brother went to his house to check on him. It was very unlike him not to show up. What he found when he walked into the couple's flat would shake him to his core. His brother and his wife, Catherine, laying in bed with their throats slit. Catherine's head was almost severed. The razor had cut so deep. Their heads were then bashed in by an axe, and not just any axe, but their own. The axe was left in the couple's bathroom and the razor discarded in the neighbor's yard. Nothing of value was stolen, but the police did find a cryptic message written in chalk on the pavement near the crime scene that read, Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Oh. The police theorized that the Mrs. Tony in the message referred to Tony Chiambra, an Italian grocery store 
owner, who was one of many Italian merchants murdered seven years earlier. Oh, before the Maggio murders? Yeah. Oh, shit. Which were all axe-related murders. Dude, I'm learning so much right now. Yeah. And I have such hard gels. Yeah. Me too. Later that year, on June 27th, a baker who sold his bread to the grocery store owner, Louis Besumer, walked up to the store and immediately knew something wasn't quite right. The door was locked and no one answered when he knocked. He walked around back where he knew Louis resided and knocked on the door again and noticed the panel from their door had been knocked out. Fearing for the couple, the baker proceeded to walk in and found them covered in blood but still breathing. The axe that Lewis owned found in the bathroom again, and nothing was taken from the residence. Lack of evidence and no eyewitness accounts lead to no solid witnesses. Harriet, Lewis's mistress, would die weeks later from cop complications of the attack. Before Harriet died, she pointed the finger to Lewis, exclaiming that he was a German spy. Lewis suffered from a skull fracture, which the police didn't believe he could have done to himself. Right. Nine months later, the jury agreed, and he would be found innocent at the trial. So, I also want to point out that the media had a field day. With the story, because he was obviously messing around on his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But nothing really had any... It didn't have anything to do with the case, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was some TMZ bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. Later in August, Mr. Schneider came home from a very long day at work. He opened the door to his home and had a very strange feeling. His pregnant wife was always there to greet him when he got home from work. He walked to their bedroom and found that his wife had been brutally attacked with an axe. Her scalp had been cut open, and a few of her teeth had been knocked out. She was covered in blood but still breathing. Her baby was unharmed, and she was able to give birth a week later. Damn. When the police asked her if she saw anything during the time of the attack, she said that she awoke from her nap to see a dark figure looming over her and remembered seeing an axe, but after that, everything went dark, and she never regained her memory. Oh, shit. From that night. At this point, Axeman has changed his M.O. For the first time, he attacked someone who wasn't an Italian, or a grocery store owner, which coincides a lot in New Orleans. Yeah. Italian grocers. Right, right, right. Now every New Orleans resident started to panic, fearing the boogeyman himself was after anyone. Mm -hmm. Not just Italian merchants, not just grocery store owners, but anyone. Right. A few weeks later, he struck again. Mary and Pauline woke up to loud noises coming from the neighboring room they were sleeping in. When they got up to investigate the sounds, 
they found their uncle, Joseph Romano, bleeding very badly from a head wound, but this time they actually saw the assailant. The women described the person as a dark-skinned and heavy-set man. He was wearing a dark suit and a slouch hat. Joseph died two days later of his head wound. Joseph was also an Italian grocer. Huh. Slowly, the police started to realize that the axeman was breaking into the houses by chiseling small door panels out and sneaking in. That is a pretty small hole for a heavyset person. Yeah. And there were no signs of forced entry, and the doors were still locked. Mm-hmm. Police were left puzzled again. Why didn't he bring his own axe? And why did he leave his chisel at the crime scene? The people of New Orleans were living in constant fear. Who would be next? After a seven-month hiatus, March 10th, 1919, the axe man struck again. Once again, a family of grocers were the target. And I'm going to kill this. The name. I'm so sorry to every Italian person out there. We're not Italian. We're doing our best. I love pasta. And thank you for that. But I'm going to fuck (laughs) this up. Anyway, Rosie Cornemiglia woke up from a deep sleep to her husband fighting off the axe man. Rosie grabbed her two-year-old daughter and cradled her in her arms. Charles Cornmiglia would lose the fight to the Axeman, suffering several blows to the head and a skull fracture. Then the Axeman turned to Rosie and her daughter. He slashed the axe at Rosie and her two-year-old daughter, hitting them both, killing her daughter almost instantly. Mm. Their neighbor, Irolando Giordano, would hear the commotion from his house and alerted the authorities and then rushed to their house. Rosie and Charles would make a full recovery. But here is where things get very strange. The police believe that Irolando and his son Frank had attacked the family. They owned a rival grocery store. And Rosie would eventually point the finger at the Giordanos, and they would later be found guilty for their crimes. Oh, shit. Yeah. Charles swore that he knew the Giordanos had no part in it. He later divorced Rosie for her part in having the two arrested. Damn. However, a year later, Rosie would go to the media and recant her statement. She told the local newspaper that she was forced to testify against the Giordanos by the police, and if she went to anyone, they would arrest her too, for lying. Because Rosie went to the media, the Giordanos' lives were spared. Days after the Cordomagillia's attack, the Times-Picayune newspaper got a very strange letter in the mail. The content inside would make any person's blood run cold. This is the best part of this whole story in my book. Hottest Hell, March 13th, 1919. 
esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, bemeared with the blood of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way that they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished I could pay a visit to your city every night at will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst. For I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans in my infinite mercy. I am going to make a little proposition to you people. And here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it's about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy.
Ooh-wee. And that was the night that jazz could be heard throughout all of the town. And no one died that night. Something to be said for that. Yeah. But three more attacks would happen. And the Axeman would claim one more life before completely dropping off the face of the universe. Why had he targeted Italian grocery store owners? Why had he attacked the random pregnant woman? So many questions will forever go unanswered. A hundred plus years have passed and still no one knows who the Axeman was. Was he a severely mentally ill man spiraling? Or was he really a being not from this world? Anxious to go back home to hell where he belonged. We will probably never know why or who. But just to be safe, you may want to fall asleep to jazz music tonight. Tell you what. Fact of the matter is, nobody's ever caught the Axeman. The devil of New Orleans. That's one of my favorite serial killer stories in all of, as morbid as that sounds, one of my favorite serial killer stories in all of history is the Axeman of, of New Orleans. Yeah. That's because a good one. it is, yeah. That letter to the Times-Picayune is just something else. Who knows if it was real or not? Well, we'll never know. I mean, that was in 1919 and nobody ever caught him. You know, so. Maybe he's immortal. Maybe. Maybe he's back. Maybe he just has been all over the world and New Orleans was just one stop. Why do you hate Italians? I have so many questions. They brought us so many delicious dishes. Don't do that to them. <laughs> and there were there was a lot to that, to like... There was already a lot of anti-Italian sentiment. A in lot of xenophobia, yep. a lot of racism. Yep, and as for everything else in the world, every part of history ever. But like, there was already a lot of anti-Italian sentiment in yeah. New Orleans at the time, and when this started happening, they're like, "Well, if the." If the fucking Italians weren't here, then we wouldn't even have to worry about this. That's what makes me wonder, like, do you think it was, like, uh, like a, do you think it was, like, a black person? I don't know. It's so rare for, like, any... It would be such a statistical anomaly. It, but it's never a zero. The chance no, is no, no. never zero. No, no, no. It would be a statistical anomaly, but honestly, I feel like the that firsthand account of it being a dark-skinned person yeah. was honestly probably the Italians trying their best to get the focus off of the Italian community. Right. But they could be technically dark-skinned. They well, were right there. Yeah, you're no, you're right. On the sea. And I'm not like But I think I think realistically those victims probably didn't see shit and no. were probably so scared and terrified by what had happened to them 
and by the hatred that was being shown to the Italian community mm-hmm. at that time that they were like, well, if we pawn this off on the black community, then maybe the focus will shift a little bit. Right. But also, I want to say that, like, so, I don't know. Because this caused an uptick in Italian hate crimes. Yeah, I know. But also, I just want to point out the fact that this was supposed to be a heavy set man breaking into one singular door panel. Yeah, yeah, knocking out which and which he not, did not unlock the door. We should note that because not everybody has doors like that now, and some people probably don't even know what doors like that look like. Okay, old wooden doors were like so. Imagine a four panel window. Every door had those, but they were wood panels. So you couldn't, like, see through them, but you could knock a wooden panel out. How wide would you say that? I wouldn't say six six inches. No, I would say an average average panel would be about one foot wide by about two foot tall. You think a one foot wide panel? Like, you think that's a door panel? Yeah, about a a foot, foot wide by about a foot tall, or by about two feet tall. That's pretty big. Yeah, but... I don't know, person, I guess I picture... Could a person that large... Could a six-foot-tall person I, cram themselves through a two-by-one panel? Even... I don't know. Even if it was two-by-one, and I could be overestimating the So dimensions. what if it was a daemon? That's... I'm saying, you know, when I read this story the first time I ever... I ever read it years and years ago and read the the letter and the fact that he just dropped off the face of the earth. Like, I'm like, that was the thing that got me, one of the things that got me really interested in the paranormal. Yeah. Because I'm like, what if this was something supernatural? Yeah. What if this was more than just a person killing other people? You um, know? And a lot of these people that were murdered, their houses are haunted with remnants of them. Yeah. And they're brutal murder. Yeah, yeah. And but I do want to point out there is a lot of people who survived. Yeah. And even in the 1900s like the early this is before the 20s. Yeah. Barely. But, but it was. But people survived from the axe from being attacked, attacked. by an axe. And I just really, like, I don't give them enough credit. Yeah. Because that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people didn't, but there are a, a lot of survivors. Oh, yeah. This, either way, this was a terrible crime. And it, something very peculiar. And it's a deep part of New Orleans history, you know? One of those dark corners that you find when you look just deep enough. Yep. So let's take a quick break, and we will be right back with my story. Yeah. So my story is uh, basically a cryptid story, but it's a few cryptids. And I, I hope you guys enjoy it. This is a more artistic one. So I've taken some liberties... And I hope that I, I hope that I keep it interesting for you guys. So, the title of the story is "Always Carry a Frog." Don't threaten me. I'd finally made it to New Orleans. 
Well, kind of. I was technically in Kenner at Louis Armstrong International Airport. The palm trees in the courtyard situated across from where I stood waiting on a cab were a bit out of place. After all, I was in Louisiana, not Puerto Rico. Nonetheless, they gave me the distinct feeling of being on vacation and bolstered by my already outstanding mood. I glanced at my phone and checked the time. 5.22 a.m. Perfect. I had always imagined Bourbon Street as a wide, bustling thoroughfare in the heart of the French Quarter. In truth, it was little wider than an alley. The legendary heart of New Orleans was by no means disappointing. The street was lined with buildings that appeared to have come straight from a storybook. It was nearly barren, though. After all, it was only 6.30 in the morning. My cab screeched to a halt in front of a building that, had it not bore the name Royal Sinesta on the blue and white cloth banners hanging at the front, I likely would have asked where we even were. The building was elegant, but every building in the French Quarter was. This was my hotel, after all. I checked in as Bourbon Street woke up for the day. And as I went to my room, I drew the curtains, turned up the ceiling fan, and climbed into the pillow-top bed. This had been the plan from the start. Arrive early, sleep all day, and take in the nightlife of the Crescent City. I stirred as the sound of bass caused the windows to rattle just so much. I snagged my phone from the side table and checked the time. 6.48 p.m. Any other day, sleeping on and off for 11 and a half hours would have made me feel like I had wasted it. But as I drew back the curtains and opened the French doors to the balcony, taking in the neon lights and sounds of music and chatter from the street below, I was finally ready to start my day. After grabbing a bite to eat and enjoying some jazz, I decided it was time to explore the French Quarter. By now it was getting later. I'd killed a couple of hours listening to music and enjoying cocktails, so it was after 9 p.m., but the night was still young. New York may be known as the city that never sleeps, but New Orleans would give that title a run for its money. The Big Easy was just truly awakening as the witching hour grew ever closer, and as I wandered the French Quarter, drink in hand taking in the vibrant city, the strangeness and energy was giving me life. After a stop at the old absinthe house, I was sorry. I wandered the old city, loving every minute of the bumping music, bright neon lights, and interesting people I saw around me. Hours seemed to pass in the blink of an eye, and before I knew it, 2.53 a.m. appeared on the screen of my slowly dying cell phone. One too many pictures taken, I suppose. I was now in an area that had far fewer people in it, but the ones that were there somehow seemed a bit stranger than the ones in the more populated area. Not the usual kind of strange that one finds in most cities. More like supernaturally strange. I glanced up at the street sign near me which read Loyola. Not that I knew much about New Orleans or the layout of its street, but I felt I was pretty far from my hotel 
or the hopping nightlife of the French Quarter. I rounded the corner onto Poyodras Street, still one I didn't know, and saw a building that at least looked like the elegant Spanish buildings near my hotel. Little Jim Saloon, the sign out front read. Shit, I thought. It was closed, and looked to have been closed for some time. I glanced around the relatively barren street and decided that it would be my best bet to head toward the river. At least if I didn't go straight into the French Quarter, I could follow the river to it. I couldn't help but feel uncomfortable. You see, the people that were wandering these streets far from the tourist-saturated areas close to my hotel were very different than those that I had been seeing. Some staggered by with expressionless faces. Others moved in ways that humans shouldn't. Shadows of people flashed in alleyways and others still somehow seemed to not be walking at all, rather floating. My discomfort shifted to serious unease. I didn't know why, but I no longer felt safe. I shouldn't have been there, but I had no idea how to get out. Baswati Mom, a booming yet comforting voice, came from behind me. The people wandering the streets who had once seemed to be watching me turned their gaze to the owner of the magnificent voice, and then averted their eyes and began to ignore both of us altogether. Oh God, pedi, petite, gasson one nan, the voice thundered. I spun on my heel and locked eyes with a wonderful creature. Her eyes were warm and inviting, and somehow they were wise and old, but she was so young. The woman couldn't have been more than 35. But those eyes had a hundred years of knowledge stored within them. Her face was round and healthy, much more so than the strange people around us on the street, and covered in the most inviting smile the world had ever seen. Her smooth skin screamed of someone who had lived their life in the humid air of New Orleans, and was framed on either side by wisps of black curly hair poking out of a white head wrap bearing a single red stripe down the center. She wore a black flowing dress with a blush floral print shawl thrown over her shoulders. Her arms were outstretched as though calling me in for an embrace, and just for a moment, I nearly forgot the fact that I didn't know her from Eve and almost hugged her like the Cajun mother I never had. I stopped myself and said, I'm so sorry, I don't speak French. She scoffed. Pity, this is not French. She waved a hand dismissively and smiled coyly. I speak Creole, far more difficult than French, and far more elegant. No matter, I hear by the accent, English is the tongue for you, eh? Yeah, I'm not the most cultured, I I said, slightly ashamed. No matter, no matter, she said, placing hands on either hip. I said... You look lost, my son. Uh, yeah, I am. I think I wandered a little too far from the French Quarter. I broke the eye contact, again somewhat ashamed, and looked to the ground. She grabbed one of my arms and used her free hand to force my chin up and reestablish eye contact. Don't feel no shame. If you ain't from New Orleans, it's easy to get lost in New Orleans. Though I would have thought it impossible... 
Her smile grew wider and warmer. I take you back to Vukari and get you to safety, Petit. She shoved one arm under mine and locked it into it, as though we were a suiting couple 150 years in the past. Uh, thanks, but why would you help me? I puzzled. Nobody else seems very willing to. Oh, Petit, these round here? She pointed at the people wandering the dark streets. They ain't no yats. They the reason you gon' need me to get home safe. They ain't no what? My face contorted with what, based on her reaction, must have been the most confused face any person had ever made. She exploded into hearty laughter that seemed to flood the streets and echo off of every building around. Ooh, child, you show ain't from round ornaments. (laughs) Is this a real life account? Because she right. (laughs) Anyway. She tugged at my arm with more force than I would have expected from someone like her and started dragging me down the street. Before I wander off into a strange city with you, can I ask your name? Me? She said, slapping her free hand to her chest, feigning offense. Why, I am the queen of New Orleans. She stared at me for a moment, awaiting my reaction, and apparently satisfied with my confusion, burst into her warm, infectious thundering laugh once more. Though I didn't know why, I found myself laughing too. Je suis blanc. I'm just kidding, petit. That's a name Yats gave me a long time ago. My friends call me Mama Marie. Far as I'm concerned, you my friend. She nudged at my side and smiled as we continued to stride down the shadow-covered street. Well, my name is... She slapped my arm and cut me off. Baby, you think I'd be out here looking for you around all these spooks and haints if and I didn't know who you was? H- how would... When the witch and hour get close and some poor soul ain't back to they hotel, we come a-looking. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. It still didn't make that much sense. How did she know where to look in the first place? But either way, her presence was comforting, and her radiant courage reassured me that there was nothing to worry about. We walked a couple more blocks, and all the while she told me stories of different buildings, some that were no longer there, and of people who I wouldn't have known if they had jogged up and smacked me in the face. Under any other circumstance, I might not have enjoyed the reminiscings of a stranger so much, but with her arms still interlocked in mine and her conversating as though we'd known each other since the city was founded, I was enjoying every moment. After simply listening for several minutes, I seized a pause between stories to pose Mama Marie a question. What did you mean when you told me the people around here are the reason that you came looking for me? Itty petit, these ain't no real people. At least not no more. Her tone changed. Still kind, but far more serious. I, I don't really understand. Most don't, she said, shooting me another sly smile. But you a smart garçon. I see that in your eyes. So I'm going to tell you what goes on in Orleans when the witching hour rolls round. I felt a chill shoot up my spine. Ain't nothing to worry about, Petit, she said, rubbing my arm like a mother comforting a child. 
I said I'm going to keep you safe, and my word's my bond. I wasn't sure how, but I knew she had sensed the chill that I had gotten. Most of these things wander about used to be people just like you. She paused a moment and glanced over at a man walking stiff-legged with a dead look in his eyes. <laughs> Some wishing they were still regular folks, but can't ever go back. She stopped walking in the dark street in front of an even darker alley where a shrouded mass shifted in the shadows. Others mighty happy being just what they are now. She then pointed to a flickering street light, and as soon as I looked to it, the light shot down the street out of sight. Others ain't never been people and won't never be. Oh, I'm goosies. I was pretty sure I knew what she was saying, but just in case I was losing my mind from exhaustion or the absinthe, I asked, is it because of drugs or mental illness or... She chuckled softly. Nah, those is things with the right help and head can be fixed, petite. These things can never be fixed, no matter how much they want it. She looked into my eyes, seemingly staring directly into my soul. Of course, you already knew that, didn't you? I loved the paranormal. I read about it all the time. I watched shows and documentaries and took in any information that I could, but I had never had any direct experience. I believed that strange things were all around us. Hell, that was part of my reason for coming to New Orleans, but... I rarely said much to anyone else about these things that I believed. Most people would have called me crazy for believing them, but I knew Mama Marie was talking about those very things and that she was the last person in the world who would call me crazy. You, you're talking about ghosts and cryptids and stuff, right? Petit, petit. But that's the word the English use, and they far too simple. That same coy smiles crept over her face. Then, what are they? Ooh, lots of things. You've been exploring this grand old city all night and you ain't seen nothing. You ready for the queen to give you a tour most nobody gets? I paused a moment and thought about checking the time, but who was I kidding? I may never get an opportunity like this again. And I could sleep tomorrow anyway. Mm -hmm. I tightened my arm's grip around hers, took a deep breath, and said as confidently as I could, After you, your highness. We were deep in a dark part of the city that surely wasn't on any of the postcards. I really didn't remember getting there, but Mama Marie was still locked onto my arm and smiling. This a place some yats don't much like, but I think it's beautiful. She pointed to what appeared to be a miniature city in front of me. But as my eyes adjusted and I was able to see through the fog that lingered across the area a little better, I saw it was a cemetery. Welcome to Vimoyo, a city of the dead. She smiled warmly, this time not at me, but at the crypts, and gently tightened her grip on my arm. The sign next to the closed gate, etched in stone, read, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. 
Some of the things on the streets now will come here soon to rest. I have many friends in this place, and it is close to my keen wind, she said fondly, placing a hand over her heart. Here in New Orleans, the dead don't sleep below the ground. They sleep just how you do. Some say this why so many strange things happen here, and why so many strange things live here. Were some of those things zombies? I whispered. I whispered. Though I believed in many things paranormal, zombies weren't something I ever legitimately considered. She nodded. They are, but not how you think it. In the blink of an eye, we were back somewhere in the French Quarter. It was a darker part of the quarter, somewhere tourists didn't spend a lot of time, but the buildings gave it away. They can't see you now, so we gonna get real close. That is, if you still want to know what they are. I nodded, accepting what Marie was telling me as fact, and wanting more than ever to see what she was going to show me. Marie starts out easy. She walked to a woman who was stumbling down the street. On the surface, one would assume she was drunk, and her sunken face and glazed eyes would have led me to believe that drugs might have been involved as well. This Tifi Pove is what we call a zombie. One kind of zombie, that is. We followed the stiff, staggering woman down the streets. Thing is, she wasn't never dead. I was visibly confused. So she's alive? No, Marie said mournfully. She's somewhere in the middle. Marie was visibly upset by this. She still thinks like you and me. She wishes she was dead, but that wish won't never come true. We continue to follow her. Long time ago, just after she was turned, she wished to be regular again, but she didn't have no say in that. So someone did this to her? Show did. Marie looked into the distance. Some dark voodoo woman came some years ago and decided they needed something real bad done. You don't make a zombie unless it's real bad and you can't be seen doing it, she said matter-of-factly. So this voodoo woman made this girl a zombie. She poisoned her. She poisoned her. And when this girl whole family thought she was dead, they had put her in a crypt. The voodoo woman opened it up and brought her back with the zombie cucumber. Marie shook her head and continued. Then on, the voodoo woman controlled her. Of course, that bad woman only needed her so long and stopped telling her what to do one day. Since then, this poor girl just wander every night when the witching hour come round. Seemingly bringing herself out of a trance, Marie shook her head and pulled me around the corner, where a man was moving down the sidewalk across the narrow road. If I hadn't have looked closely, I might have thought he was just walking quickly, but he was actually floating. His legs weren't moving, but his long pants disguised that. Not for the fact that the pant legs were folded under dragging the ground. It would have been a decent disguise. Now him, she said, wagging her finger at the man. He did. He did. (laughs) How was he moving like that? He don't have to follow our rules. He ain't bound to this world. 
She led me down the road, paralleling the zombie's path. About 1869, someone decided they needed some help working their fields. Since the slaves was free, the farmer went to a voodoo priest and asked him for a little help. Full price, the priest went out to Locust Grove Number 1, since only Potters was buried there, and grabbed up a few petite angels and gave them to the farmer. I'm sorry, but I don't really know what that means. You see, we all got a petite angel that lives in us. They wait around for Twajo three days after we die, and if someone with enough power trick them or maybe grab them up, then you be- your body belonged to that person. So the farmer used zombies to work his fields? Mm-hmm. That one there? She pointed across the street. He worked the fields for about 25 years. Till the farmer got rid of the petite angels. Problem was, Locust Grove got torn down about 1879. So that boy didn't have nowhere to go back to. At least not for good. He just wanders all the time? It's gotta be terrible. Ain't nothing worse than being made a zombie. He didn't know it though. He don't know nothing. He just wandered around waiting for someone to tell him what to do again. Ain't nothing going through that head. I gave him permission to rest at St. Louis number one, but since he got nowhere to go for good, he come back out here every night. Mm. We turned down an alley, leaving the floating man behind us. Now these next things, they really gonna chill you, Marie said sternly. What could be worse than zombies, I said with a chuckle. Petit, I mean it. These things bad, but knowing what they are will keep you safe. You think you ready? I was less sure than I had been, but I nodded in confirmation. After all, I'd come this far. Okay, look right there. She pointed to the corner of a dead-end alley, and I saw the thing. It was hunched over, gnawing on something. From behind it appeared to generally have the build of a very strong man. The problem was, it seemed to be just a bit too hairy for a human. At that moment, it stood and turned. Had Marie not gripped me so tight, reminding me that it couldn't see me, probably would have ran. He can sense us, she grinned. He was more than six and a half feet tall. His legs were very clearly the the hind legs of a large canine. Just above his waist, the slightly too hairy torso of an extremely muscular human heaved as he panted. His arms were basically human save for the elongated fingers tipped with razor-sharp nails. From his collarbone up, the hair again thickened, and his powerful neck was topped by the largest wolf head I had ever seen. Yes. That's not very comforting, I mumbled. Oh, yep, you're right. Don't worry, Petit. He knows we hear, but he can't do nothing to us. She patted my arm. What is he? He kinda a zombie too, just a little different. We call him a Rougarou. Ooh. Looks like a werewolf to me. That's what the Germans call him. We say Rougarou, cause he a little different. 
He can get rid of this curse if he can control his hunger, she said, pointing to the mangled flesh and bones of what appeared to be a human body on the ground behind him. Jesus, I breathed. Jesus can't do nothing for him. About two years ago, he got bit by another Rougarou. That curse passed to this man. By day, he'd go to work, visit friends, ride the bus, just like any other yacht. Come night, though, he'd turn into this and gotta eat. He has to just bite, not eat someone to get rid of the curse, right? She nodded. Does the curse ever end? No, sir. Been going on for as long as anyone can remember. And it'd be around long after we all gone. The Rougarou looked around the alley, sniffing the air and occasionally huffing like a wild animal looking for its next prey. Mm. I know you said he can't hurt us, but can we get out of here? She laughed warmly and replied, We we have one more thing to see before the witch and hour ends. In another blink of an eye, we were on the end of Spanish Street, just feet from the Mississippi. This one been round forever. Since before people walked the mud, and it gonna be round long after they ain't no more people. She gestured to an abandoned warehouse on the corner and drug me toward it. Pray say, else it gonna look like a normal person before we get there. We crept into the building and rounded a corner into a dark, damp room. Inside, a flickering light emanated from the far side. Had I not seen the same thing earlier, I might have written it off as a fading light bulb. The light continued to flicker as it approached a suitcase setting on a dilapidated shelf. This light pulled the suitcase off the shelf, not with hands or arms, but with some unseen force, and opened it up. Between the constant flickering and the strange shadows in the room, I couldn't tell what was in the case. That didn't matter, because it would be obvious in just a moment. The light pulled, at first, what seemed to be a dress up out of the suitcase and draped it over its form. As the clothing came to life, what it actually was became clear to me. The limbs began inflating and contorting as though air was filling it. It whipped in the air and nearly overinflated, causing me to fear it was going to explode, but it recovered and adjusted to the correct proportions. Now, it was obvious what had been in the suitcase. It was a skin suit. It wasn't grotesque or disgusting like an Ed Gein skin suit. No, it just seemed to be the empty skin of an old woman. She now stood over the suitcase and pulled her clothing out and dressed herself. Now the room was even darker with no light emitting from anywhere. The old woman brushed off her clothing and turned toward us. She smiled a crooked smile and placed a finger on her wrinkled lips. And looking directly at at me, she made a shushing sound and moved around us as she left the room and exited the building. I love it. How can she see us? Some things, things like that, can nobody hide from, Marie said stoically, and led me from the room. That ain't no she, neither. What is it, then? It's a kind of jumbie, 
a spirit that's lived around here for a real long time. We Creole called it the Luguru. Ooh. Confused, I asked. So is there a Ruguru and a Luguru? Is this a kind of zombie too? She shook her head. Oh no, nobody created this. It just is. In the day it walked the streets looking just like a businessman or a little mama looking for victims. Come night, take that skin off and it puts it in a box or bag and heads out to steal blood. Trying to make another one. You see, she steal all your blood, then you become one too. Oh. We suddenly appeared in front of my hotel. The only way to get rid of that kind of thing is to burn the skin while it's gone. Then it can't hide from the daylight to hunt. Sensing our time was drawing to its close, I said, There are some weird things in New Orleans. Some scary things. That ain't the half of it, Petite. She pulled me into a hug and then stepped back. From under her shawl, she pulled a small jar. I might have to sleep for the next day, I said, rubbing my face and glancing at the clock on the hotel, which read 4.22 a.m. That's okay. Here, you keep this. She handed me the jar, which I raised to be even with my eyeline. Inside, perched on a small clump of moss, sat a tiny tree frog. A frog? I puzzled. We, Timon. Most of them haints we saw tonight ain't nothing they hate more than a frog. It keep you safe, she said confidently. Most? Well, that Lugaroo ain't afraid of nothing. But you seen it, so it don't want nothing to do with you now. I cupped the jar with both hands and smiled at the kind woman. Thanks, Mama Marie. I hope I'll see you soon. Maybe you will, Petit. Maybe you will. Till then, remember, Toju Pope Young Capro, always keep a frog. With that, she turned and strode down the narrow street. The next night, I finally woke up around 6 p.m. I decided to head north this time and found my way to a little shop that caught my eye. It was called Voodoo Blues. Given all that had happened the night before, the word voodoo caught my eye. So, I wandered in. As I peroused the shop's offerings, something drew my full attention. It was a keychain with the portrait of a woman on it. She wore a head wrap, black dress, and blush flower print shawl. Keychain in hand, I sped to the shop attendant. Who is this? Why, that's Marie Lavoux, the voodoo queen of New Orleans, the shop attendant said. Wow, I smiled. She told me she was the queen, but I figured she was just kidding. I got to meet her last night. The girl laughed a little harder than I had expected. One too many daiquiris, huh? She joked. What? No, I I really did. She helped me get back to my hotel. She shook her head, still chuckling. Oh, did she? Must have been hard for her since she's been buried in St. Louis number one for 130 years. I pulled the small jar with the frog out of my pocket and looked back at the keychain and I muttered, Always carry a frog. I love it. So I hope you like that. I got to incorporate some of the lore of New Orleans 
the no zombies, luck. some of the voodoo lore. I love it. Lugaroos and Rugaroos and all that good stuff. I hope you guys like this episode. I'm going to do my best to cut it down some because it's been very long. All three segments are going to be very long and it's going to take me forever to edit these. But it's great. He's right. Because you know what? New Orleans is great. It's so good. Such an awesome city. It's beautiful. I can't wait to finally go. I'm literally always been on my list. I can't wait to finally visit. Agreed. When we do visit, we don't even have to get off a highway hardly. It's just off I-10. We've been on I-10. We have More times than I ever care to admit. I don't want to talk about it. And when we're there, I know that we're going to meet some truly amazing people. And we're going to eat delicious Creole food. That's right. We are going to drink some fantastic New Orleans beer. You might even encounter a spirit. Yeah, you might see a like a freaking zombie out there. You don't know. Yeah. And hopefully. These are the places you'll go. 